Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Hey, everybody. I got a great one today, you know, for a change. You know, I, I got a comment the other day from a listener who wrote, Al, I love your podcast, but stop saying it's a great one for a change because it's insulting to your previous guests. I hadn't thought of that, so I called my previous guests and asked them if they felt that way, and only Norm Ornstein uh, said he had a problem with it. Uh, Norm said he was very, very hurt. So I've got a great one today for a change, except uh, for the ones that uh, Norm Ornstein did, which are always uh, terrific. My guest today is Jeremy Peters, who's been a correspondent for the New York Times for uh, 15 years and is an MSNBC contributor. So unlike my other guests, he knows what he's talking about, which uh, in this case is about his new book, Insurgency, How Republicans Lost Their Party and Got Everything They Ever Wanted. It's a great read because every right-wing asshole from the last 20 years is featured. I mean, Practically every one of them. There's an old saying, if assholes could fly, there would be no sunlight. So you got your Limbaugh, your Gingrich, uh, your Roger Ailes, your Sarah Palin, uh, your Steve Bannon, your Sean Hannity. And it's uh, really about how they've um, always been there, but how after the Republican Party had fielded establishment presidential candidates like George H.W. Bush, Bob Dole, George W. Bush, John McCain, and Mitt Romney, we got Donald Trump, who completed the devolution of the Republican Party into a dark, angry, authoritarian party that considers beating up Capitol Police with the aim of killing Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi and overturning the election to be legitimate political discourse. This is what, this is what we got now. Even so, this was uh, kind of a fun conversation. Peter, are you there? I'm here. I'm here. Let me get your impression of this. I I felt, and tell me if you think this is an accurate. He laughs a lot during this this interview. Right? He does. Yeah. Okay, and that's not terribly unusual. I'm 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 funny, but did you get the sense that he's probably done a lot of really serious interviews about this book? And that he was just getting a little, little tired of that, or this was refreshing. How about that? That this was refreshing. Well, yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. It's not a uh, light subject that he's tackling. You know, the complete and total collapse of one of the only functioning political parties in this country. When he says everything they want, I don't want to ruin things for him in the interview, but when he said, you know, part of that is he is he got the evangelicals Trump did by pledging to uh, uh, nominate only judges that the Federalist Society uh, recommended, and uh, so the evangelicals went for him, and even though 
you know, why would evangelicals like a person like Donald Trump? Although he says in the book that a lot of evangelicals are really mad and mean. <laughs> so I guess that makes sense. But it, it's a fun one, don't you think? I do. I do. And For this topic. For this topic. For this topic. Yeah. You said something in the Heather McGee interview uh, last week about how sometimes things are just so dark and so upsetting that your reaction is to laugh. And I think that that's kind of where Jeremy is. Yeah. He did put a lot of reporting, a lot of work in some great nuggets in there uh, in, in the book. We'll get to some of those in a lot of those in the interview. Um, well, great. Thanks, Peter. That was easy. I, I didn't have to write anything uh, except that opening. Norm Ornstein wasn't the one insulted. It was Dahlia Lithwick. Oh, by the way, I'm going to be on the Tonight Show Wednesday, uh, March 2nd. Uh, I'm going to be Jimmy Fallon's guest, and I'll be talking about the the State of the Union address there on the on the Tonight Show. Well, we got a great one today, you know, for a change. Jeremy Peters is my guest, and we're going to be talking about how the right wing nutcases have taken over the Republican Party. The best way to learn a language: immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example... Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jeremy Peters is uh, with me today. Jeremy has been a correspondent for the New York Times uh, for more than 15 years. He's also a political contributor for MSNBC. That's the Microsoft National Broadcasting Company, headquartered in New York City. Is that correct, Jeremy? That, that is correct, yes. Um, I believe you used to work for one of their entities at, at, at some point, didn't you? I did. I did. It was uh, the NBC part. Yeah. Yes. yes. Um, Jeremy has a new book out, Insurgency, How Republicans Lost Their Party and Got Everything They Ever Wanted. It's about how uh, the Republican Party has become what it is today, a party that considers assaulting Capitol Police, <laughs> uh, gouging out their eyes, uh, breaking their vertebrae, spraying them with bear spray, 
slamming them with hockey sticks and baseball bats, uh, giving them traumatic brain injuries, considering all of that to be legitimate political discourse. Were you sorry you couldn't get that in the book? <laughs> <laughs> How friggin' amazing it is. You know, in your book, I, uh, you just have this line of assholes that you profile <laughs> and their role in all of this. And it's uh, Limbaugh, Rush Limbaugh, of course, Sean Hannity, mm -hmm. uh, Pat Buchanan, who at least could mm -hmm. be kind of fun to be with, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's not, you know, uh, Roger Ailes, um, a monster, but also kind of charming. Yep. So, I mean, sociopaths are often uh, quite charming. Then you have some uh, sort of less well known uh, assholes, you know, the guy from. Uh, Operation Veritas, what's his name? Right, yeah, James O'Keefe. James O'Keefe, just a whole slew of these guys. Uh, you know, Alex Jones, mm -hmm. Steve Bannon, Glenn Beck, and Coulter Tucker Carlson. <laughs> if you keep going, no one's going to want to read this book. <laughs> Newt Gingrich. Well, no, it's all, uh, it's all like a trip down Nightmare Lane. Giuliani, uh, Stephen Miller gets shows mm -hmm. up, Breitbart, uh, Karl Rove, uh, Roger Stone. Mm. And, of course, you kind of start with Sarah Palin. And what's fascinating about this is, is it's just how the Republican Party just got taken over by these insurgents. And it's their party now, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, every one of those people you name through, for the most part, were kind of at the periphery of the conservative movement in the Republican Party. I mean, these were not people who were invited to speak at Mitt Romney's Republican National Convention. And they were dismissed and they were laughed at and, and, and disrespected to a large degree by the Republican leadership. And that was a really important part of their political identity and uh, created a real a galvanizing sentiment, I think, among a lot of them uh, and why they identified with Trump, because Trump is ultimately somebody who is not ideological. He's driven solely by his grievance and his desire for revenge. And it's something I get into in the chapter. I'm glad you mentioned Roger Ailes, because there's a scene which has long been like lost to the, uh, the, the into the void of canceled cable news shows. But Roger Ailes, when he was president of CNBC, gave himself a talk show and he had all sorts of interesting. I was on that on. talk show, believe it or not. Were you really? That's amazing. Isn't it amazing? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he put, consider yourself flattered because he picked really interesting people to be on that show. And one of them was Donald Trump. Uh, you probably don't enjoy being in that company, but like in, in 1995, of course, Donald Trump was a, was a, not a political figure, but he in many ways was the same type of grievance oriented character that he is now. And Roger says to him, you know, I don't get it, Donald, like these, these construction workers, the road crews, they say, Hey, Donald, you know, how, how are you doing? We love you. And you're this millionaire from Manhattan. How does that work? And Trump's answer is as resonant today as it was back then. He says, well, it's because the rich people, they're, they're the ones that don't like me. So what Trump was doing there is that, you know, he identified that it's, it's not just about his appeal. It's about who people think hate him. And, and it's about his enemies as much as it is uh, anything in, in his own personal character that people find appealing. 
Oh, man. I shouldn't say I hate him then. <laughs> that gives them fuel. You know what's, what's interesting? I mean, basically, what the, the arc of this book is how the party became the Trump party. And if you think about who the nominees and a couple presidents, a couple Bush presidents, uh, who the nominees for the Republican Party were since, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 88, H.W., uh, then you you profile Buchanan, who challenged H.W. Uh, in 92. Mm-hmm. But then it was Bob Dole. Mm-hmm. Then it was George uh, W. Bush. Then it was McCain. <laughs> and then it was Romney. And those were what we used to think of, of when we thought of Republicans. Mm-hmm. And then it was Trump. And that was, so what you're doing right there, and you would have no way of knowing this, but you're actually spelling out the idea that formed my book proposal. I was having lunch with a well-known Republican strategist who worked for all of those people, except for Trump, who you just named uh, over the years, including he worked, he worked with Roger Ailes. Uh, and he said to me, you know, one of the things that we're going to be puzzling over for years is looking at that line of Republican nominees, Bush, Bush, McCain, Romney, and who? And I felt that that, that, that question, the, the, the who, how, like, how did it get to this guy? Explain this, because 25 years from now, when people are in, in grade schools are looking at the wall uh, and the portraits of the presidents above the chalkboard there, Donald Trump's picture is going to still be there, and there's going to be a, a lot of explaining to do about how we got to that point, because it looks like such an anomaly. And what my book tries to argue is that Trump wasn't an anomaly in the Republican Party. He was actually kind of the soul of it for the last 25, 30 years, starting with a guy like Buchanan, who ran in 92 on a lot of the ideas that Trump ended up running. Yeah. And if you think about it now, Romney is the anomaly. Mm hmm. And and basically, this has always been there. This has yes. always been, and and the roots are in the Tea Party. But it's also, I mean, you talk about Limbaugh mm-hmm. about <laughs> about how he got this. I think you wrote a book about him, didn't you? <laughs> yes, uh, uh, um, or he was in the title at least. Well, no, it was about. It was largely about dis. I, it was funny. I wrote that in ninety five. It's called yeah, Rush Limbaugh is a big fat idiot and other observations. <laughs> Uh, and basically my thesis was that, uh, he's spreading a lot of disinformation and that's dangerous. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I could have grabbed from the book, from, from your book, it, because what it's true, the, the, what Limbaugh called, as you well know, the, the four corners of deceit on his radio show, you know, academia, government, science, and the media. I mean, that was conditioning his audience for years and years not to trust authority and knowledge. And so we shouldn't at all be surprised by the time we get to 2020 and Trump says, they're stealing this from you, the, you know, the media, the Democratic Party. Uh, it's, it's, it's all a big conspiracy. They had been hearing that kind of stuff for years. They'd been hearing it was a hoax from Trump for ever since he started running for president. And he uh, even before that, when he claimed that the, the Emmys were rigged because he'd never been nominated for an Emmy for The Apprentice. Yeah, uh, what I mean, they, just, they are. 
<laughs> well, he, I'm very bitter about that. I've only won five. <laughs> I deserve more. Well, the, the you know the, the 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 academy aside, I think Trump is was was speaking there to like this this sense that people who, who identified with conservative movement politics, who identified with the Republican Party, but not exclusively with the Republican Party felt like they were one presidential election away from losing their purchase on cultural, political, and social power in this country. And they thought that for a variety of reasons, you know, and that, and that election was Obama. (laughs) Yeah. That election was Obama, right? That's exactly right. That freaked them Um, out, boy. That freaked them out. Well, yeah, it, it, it really did. I mean, you know, because you know, you, you, you served with John McCain and McCain is an interesting figure in the book because what I report that hasn't really been out there before is the extent to which the McCain campaign was actually using the grievances and the anger out there in, in a way to in a way that they crafted Sarah Palin's words for her. Sarah Palin, when McCain chose her, she took a dark turn because the McCain people not only allowed her to do it, they wrote those words into her script, including the most famous line I think that she ever uttered during that campaign, that Obama was, quote, palling around with terrorists. That came from the McCain campaign headquarters. And I think that would surprise everyone because you don't think of Steve Schmidt, who was running that campaign, and you don't think of McCain stooping to that, but they did. Mm-hmm. But and, he did, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a complicated part of his legacy because for all that he was, you know, the a war hero who, who you know, stood up against the, the Bush administration's use of terrorism um, and, and, and somebody who ran as a maverick himself against the, the establishment Republican Party. It's a complicated legacy because ultimately the choice of Sarah Palin was on him and he, he let this happen. It was sort of a Hail Mary. They thought they... You know, they needed something, right? They needed something, yeah. Yeah. You forget that uh, William Crystal was like a big champion of hers. What I love most about the, the Bill Crystal story, um, and, and you might appreciate this, is... Let, let's explain who Bill Crystal is. Uh, oh, yeah, please. Yeah. I think our audience knows. I actually had him as uh, one of my guests. Chief of Staff for uh, Dan Quayle, he... What was his, uh, the magazine he did? Um, the Weekly Standard. The Weekly Standard. And now he's a never Trumper, et cetera. But the Weekly Standard did a cruise to Alaska, <laughs> you know, fundraising tour, <laughs> a, a cruise. And they stopped and she, he was very impressed with her. And uh, he kind of suggested her, right? He did. Yes, he absolutely did. I think he regrets he, that, boy. Oh, he absolutely does. Um, but what he tells me in the book, um, which is, you know, I mean, hindsight is everything, right? He says that, you know, back then it wasn't as clear to him that she considered herself to come from a different part of the Republican Party, right? Like he, it, he, he described that lunch to me as, oh, this is Sarah Palin, the Republican governor, and she is inviting these, these Republicans she sees on Fox News uh, to come meet with her. And he didn't see it as uh, even given that what, what he should have known about her history uh, as somebody who took on establishment Republicans and beat them, like, like Governor Frank Murkowski, who she she killed off in a primary, uh, that she was capable of using her that that populist energy and turning it against 
their party, turning against John McCain, really. And what fascinated me about Crystal, that's an interesting footnote that, that people probably forget about his background, is he was the one involved in, remember the, the Murphy Brown versus Dan Quayle? Sure. Yeah, yeah. The, he was Dan Quayle's chief of staff. And uh, they made a big deal about her being a single mom or something and how it exactly because she decided to keep her baby instead of having an abortion, which evidently <laughs> right. uh, Quail would have preferred. <laughs> right. it, was, it, it wasn't the most logical of no, no. things to pick, right? Yeah. Um, but so, so, so Crystal's involved in that. And the speechwriter, uh, the speechwriters who are working on. Dan Quayle's speech where, you know, he, he famously said of Murphy Brown and, and her Hollywood ilk, I wear your scorn like a badge of honor. Those speechwriters ended up working with Sarah Palin on her speech in 2008. So the, the, the book, what I hope, you know, you and other people take away from it is the way that there are these threads of, of Trumpism, which ultimately is like it's a, it's a grievance based identity. Uh, this idea that there are people out there who think they're better than you, like, you know, famously saw Obama's saying, you know, those people who cling to their guns and religion and Hillary's deplorables, you know, it's that type of attitude that was there all along. Those are two mistakes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make those kinds of mistakes. Uh, yeah, the deplorables, they just grabbed onto that. They and took wore that, of course, as a badge of honor. Oh, yeah, they make T-shirts out of it. Yeah. And so this goes back, uh, you know, Limbaugh, of course, you know, gets the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And what I like about it is that you write about that when you write about him getting that is that Trump, this is very Trump. Mm -hmm. He brings him to the State of the Union and announces it. And Limbaugh already knew it, but. Limbaugh did an acting job, which is, oh, my God, I didn't realize I was going to get that, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you know, at the White House. Everybody. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, <laughs> which is great. But but Trump, this is how Trump thinks. And there's there's all kinds of things. Of course, like uh, bringing Juanita Broderick to the debates, this kind of shit, is, right. is that everybody knew Limbaugh was dying. He had mm -hmm. stage four lung cancer. And so he had him in the balcony and announced it and spent a lot of time praising him. And he just relished the idea that Democrats had to like, what do we do? The guy's dying. Exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, it was win-win if they applauded for him, <laughs> you know, they weren't going to applaud for him, but then it was like, aha, these Democrats are terrible. The man's dying and they won't applaud for him. But I mean, he, it's it's reality television as the presidency. It's that that's what that's what he was good at. Now, here's the thing: I've I've heard you interviewed and saying that you think that it's very possible they move past Trump, and 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 that this whole thing about him, just the grievance about the election, that people want to kind of move beyond that. I disagree with you. Okay. I think that that's just Trump. I think he's kind of sui generis. I think he's a uh, you know he's an autocrat. He's a you know, he's a psychopath. Uh, I think they like that about him, that he holds grievances. Yeah. I think he's got a hold of this party. <laughs> That's why the Republican National Committee called that legitimate political discourse. There's also, this is about a charismatic leader, right? I don't see anybody else in the Republican field that holds a candle 
to him on that kind of thing. I mean, I think they he, don't. No, I agree. and he's like a classic, mm-hmm. isn't he? He is. He is. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, it's true. He is. Uh, and, and I think, yeah, the question is um, how long he can, he, he kind of sticks around and holds, holds their attention. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think I was, I was trying to leave it open to the possibility that what happens to Trump is that the base gets too far to the right of him. Uh, which which you've started to see in some ways, but I would agree with you that he is. There is no, Ron DeSantis and Mike Pence and these these other guys. They are not going to be able to replicate what Trump did. Don Jr. is not going to be. It's it's. There's no replicating what what Trump does because I don't think. I mean, as we were just saying, he's such a showman. I mean, and that's why I focus on Limbaugh in the book so much. Um, and drawing a comparison to the way that he and Trump understood how to use media is that it's you, you don't you can't teach that. And right. both of them were masters in, in that field. Yeah. And that's part of the reason he got the Presidential Medal of Freedom, because to me, it, it without Limbaugh, there might not be a Trump. I agree with that. I, I agree with that 100 percent. And I think that's that's why um, I found it so revelatory in my conversations with Trump. And this is, I, I almost feel silly saying this, uh, that, that, that Donald Trump had something um, introspective and insightful to say about himself because he's not exactly the kind of guy who sits around thinking about everyone that's helped him and how he's formed this worldview um, that, that, that he's sharing with the rest of us. He's not a, a, an incredibly um, thoughtful guy when it comes to turning that lens on himself. But he said to me, Limbaugh gave him some advice during the transition in 2016, 15, 16, that stuck with him. And that was the transition, be, meaning the, the presidential campaign. transition between Obama and Trump. So this is like so in other words, after election. he won. Yeah, it's like around Christmas after he had won. And OK, so that's 16. Stunned. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 16. So sorry, I said 15. But uh, yeah, so we're all still stunned that, you know, he's going to be the next president of the <laughs> yes. United States. And I, I vividly remember in my, in my keyboard uh, at, at the New York Times, like typing in the words president elect Donald Trump. And it, I mean, that took some getting. Did you vomit? Even- <laughs> I mean, did, did you have to get a new computer? <laughs> I, did, I did not. No, I didn't vomit. But it, it, it was one of those things where. It was a remind, a daily reminder, because you know I would type those those words into my into my computer every day. Almost, I was writing a story. It was just a daily reminder of how surreal this was and what a historic yep. change we were undergoing as a country, and not always for the good. But I think that Trump was he the, the Limbaugh the Limbaugh comparison is so interesting because Limbaugh just wasn't somebody that Trump admired as a broadcaster, and uh, you know he was a neighbor in Palm Beach, and they went golfing together. <laughs> But, but <laughs> it, some of the most formative advi- political advice he ever got came from Rush Limbaugh, I think, says all you need to know about uh, the way that he conducted his presidency, the way he viewed his presidency. What was the advice? What um, was the advice? The advice was to Lim- from Limbaugh, don't ever cut deals with Democrats because, and it's not the, not the actual advice itself that's so interesting, it's the reason. Limbaugh said, because the Democrats and the left will never give you credit for it. They will always hate you. And if you try to appease them, it will never work. And so productive. I think it's exactly right. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, it makes me. God, that's a patriot. Right. So that's the, I mean, and then look at Trump's presidency. Did, did With the exception of maybe attempting to cut a deal on, on getting 
um, some type of immigration reform done for the kids who, who came here uh, when they were really young. Um, yeah, they, they I, didn't even do that. I mean, he didn't do that. They didn't even do that. Yeah. They, they didn't, yeah. <laughs> he didn't even get an infrastructure bill. No. Which is hilarious because, you know, he's the builder, right? Right. <laughs> and everyone wanted it. We, we all wanted it. I couldn't yeah, believe that, right? that we couldn't do it. Every week was infrastructure week. Remember? And and mm-hmm. just <laughs> no one didn't want infrastructure. <laughs> and he still couldn't do it. It's amazing how awful this guy was um, in in so many different ways. So let's uh, talk about some of the assholes here that you in the book. Uh, which ones? I mean, <laughs> uh, Bannon, uh, Glenn Beck. Mm. You you pick them. I mean, there's a Cruz. <laughs> you know uh, who you want to talk about. Uh, you know Roger Stone. All these people are just part of this story. Yeah, I think Bannon is an interesting one, right? Because he wasn't always there with Trump. And I get into this story in 2000. It's the summer of 2010, and uh, it's kind of a, a, an overlooked episode in the creation of Trump's political identity his understanding of what worked with his voters but the the ground zero mosque episode back in 2010 huge controversy right it was it wasn't a mosque but it was an islamic cultural center much like a a jcc or a ymca except for it was it was going to be run by muslims i remember that it was after 9 11 and this guy wanted to build a like a cultural center right you know a Mm -hmm. place like a yeah, yeah like a jcc except for muslims yeah, exactly. Right. And, and you know, you would have thought an that MCC. Yeah, exactly. But you would have thought that they were erecting a monument to bin Laden on Ground Zero. Well, they I shouldn't have that. called it uh, the bin Laden Community Center. But, right. <laughs> that's a, but that's that was a mistake. To your, to your question, like, when did they learn or how did they learn to distort this stuff and lie about it is that's the, 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 the construction of it in the right wing media as, as a mosque was like entirely fitting with what was happening in on, on the airwaves of Fox News and on Rush Limbaugh's show. The idea was so provocative and so outlandish and so inflaming that it became too good to, to fact check, too good to, to say, well, actually, no, there's, there's a little bit more nuance here. That it, because it played out in the right wing media, that's how people like Trump saw it. Because what, what did he do most of most of the day? He watched television. Well, what was interesting is he took this. I mean, obviously, I wrote Rush Limbaugh's a big fat idiot and other observations, and I wrote lies and lying liars who tell them a fair and balanced look the right. So I was kind of warning about this, and I was very mm-hmm. cognizant of they were just lying, lying, lying. But there's a difference between that. And the president lying all the time. <laughs> and they, right. And then lying about the lies, right? Like, what are you talking about? No, I, I, don't, I, I haven't been golfing as much as uh, more than Obama. Yeah. I mean, I, one of my favorite lies uh, that he does is the one where he, he talked about injecting disinfectant <laughs> to you. And uh, in the debate with uh, Biden, he goes, I was being sarcastic and you know it. <laughs> It's like, no, you weren't. Play that back. You know, you were not being sarcastic. Well, for a while, he was still denying that it was him on the Access Hollywood tape. He said, there's no proof that that's actually my voice. It's like, this is this is when he was still president. Like, <laughs> and it's pretty clear who's, who's speaking on the tape. The lies, this guy, it just, 
you know, from day one, of course, uh, day one was I had the biggest inaugural. <laughs> like it was like, and then, and that's when, uh, Kelly, Kellyanne, uh, Conway said there are alternative facts, which is mm-hmm. fabulous. Fabulous. Right. Thank you very much. There, we, I mean, we that could have been the title of my book too, because it just sums up so perfectly what's, what's happened to the public. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, it's amazing, isn't it? And it's mm-hmm. so dangerous. And by the way, you, when you say that kids will look up and see Donald Trump's picture, mm-hmm. uh, the president, they'll see Donald Trump, then they'll see Biden, and then they'll see Donald Trump again, <laughs> and he'll still be president when these kids are in school <laughs> because you know, he's just becoming ill that's it it's over it'll be a dictatorship i mean it'll be an authoritarian regime so we will not have a democratic election again i mean every it'll be like hungary or something like that and it'll all be fraud and you know yeah well that's that's the thing is like the seeds for the lying as as uh, as you well know it, a lot of it starts with voter fraud right this idea that i think republicans couldn't come to terms with the fact that they were losing on their ideas. Yeah, well, you have Ailes saying to Romney mm-hmm. that they... Oh, yeah. I love that scene. <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, Ailes is saying to Romney, well, they stole it. They cheat. They cheat. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you watch Fox... I mean, it's it's funny because I, I used to describe that as like that scene in Citizen Kane where uh, you know he's, he's losing the governor's race and the guys at the uh, running the press room at one of his papers had it all laid out. You know, Kane wins, and then when they figure out he's not going to win, they ch- they scramble the letters and they change it to Fuck, Kane loses. Fraud at polls. Uh, it's it's just yeah. this, this instinct that they have to deny that the, that the Republican Party has to deny that their ideas and their leaders are not representative of the majority of the people. Because remember, this is the party that told itself it was a majority, whether it was Richard Nixon's silent majority or or Ralph Reed's moral majority. They really do talk themselves into this. And you know, you asked about, about Bannon. Um, one of the interesting things about Bannon is, you know, when, when you get him uh, talking about Trump in candid moments, like he, he is well aware and very keen an observer of Trump's flaws and his recklessness. And, and one of the things he said to me was Trump is the guy who believes the, the lie as soon as it comes out of his mouth. Now, of course, he then added a dig to Bill Clinton and said, you know, he's kind of like Bill Clinton. He's the, he's, the, he's the guy that could pass the lie detector test. And I think that that's really true. I, it's, it's a capacity that I don't have, that, that, I, that I'm sure you don't have, that most of us don't have, but he is just- When I lie, I'm aware of it. Right. And, he, and I think he's not. Actually, I was just lying. <laughs> Sorry. That was not great <laughs> as a joke. Yeah, it was okay. You laughed, so uh, it counts. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it just is uh, mind-boggling. He just lies all the time. And they. what, what percentage of the uh, self-identified Republicans in this country believe the election was stolen? Oh, it's... Uh, depending on the poll, it's 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 in the way they ask the question. It's it's you know half to two thirds uh, <laughs> who believe that Biden isn't legitimate, and they have this extraordinary capacity. And this isn't exactly lying, but it's this that's in the same vein because it's this denial of reality and this ability to whitewash and look past the, the ugly things that that Trump did. It's, January sixth is the ultimate example of it. You have Kevin McCarthy. And all these folks in the immediate aftermath, the weeks after January 6th, 
who are saying that Trump is responsible. He should be censured. Then they see that that because in part because Trump is lying to his base and saying, no, this wasn't these were interlopers. These were this. This was Antifa. This wasn't really our people. And Black Lives Matters uh, people were there and who, who really did a good job of hiding their race. There was like one guy, I think, that they found who had been arrested for his association, like an anarchist leftist protest. One guy in the Capitol. And then, that, you know, it, it, it becomes um, no, this is all an Antifa false flag operation. But and that's the guy who smeared his feces on the wall. Right. Or, or the uh, <laughs> uh, blood on the statue of Zachary. Jesus Taylor, right? like Christ. These were, like these were all patriots. Good people who were just on a tour. Right. Remember, they were just they, they stayed. Yeah, you'd, the think, you'd think it was just a, a regular tourist visit. Yeah, exactly. Right. The storming of the Bastille was just a uh, tourist visit to the Bastille. <laughs> Another false flag, right? Yeah, but but that's the, that's what I try to get at as the heart of the book is is how this party became how how it allowed itself to get so detached from reality to to deny the obvious to accept the demonstrably false as truth, and a lot of that starts with the with the right wing media from Limbaugh to Ailes. But you never had a president who was as willing to lie about everything. He he lied about how much he weighed and how tall he was and how healthy he well, was. Well, everyone does ages. that. Come on. <laughs> Saying he was the most. <laughs> it was probably true. Come on. That's like the least of it. I mean, what, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, I think uh, that the election was stolen is worse than lying about your weight. For example, I'm one. I'm 160. <laughs> so am I. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's just uh it it's uh it's so friggin' disturbing that and and I worry uh, of course of course about voter suppression. Remember uh Hillary won the popular vote by about 3 million votes, right? So oh, yes, yes. Trump does like okay, he points his commission. <laughs> yes, the blue ribbon voter fraud. Kobach, is that the guy uh from Kansas? And yep. So they found nothing, nothing, no fraud, nothing <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, they're still finding nothing. Yeah. And they still find nothing. And how these people, well, what am I saying? How these people believe this shit? They just do. Oh man. Okay. More assholes. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. Who am I? Some, uh, you know, Glenn Beck becomes is kind of, he actually, what I like about Glenn, uh, the Glenn Beck thing is that Ailes puts him on, mm-hmm. and then Glenn Beck gets too popular. Too crazy. Yeah. And too crazy. And at one point, Ailes sees some kind of, you know, who the most influential right wing, you know, what's, what, what was what was the poll? Uh, there was a list that, like, someone had published, some, some publication, it's, I think it was The Independent in Britain, published a list of the most influential conservatives and this guy interviewing Roger Ailes says, well, you know, uh, a couple ticks above you on this, this list is, uh, is Glenn Beck and, and Ailes scoffs. Glenn's not a conservative. And I, the reason I put that in the book is because that's, that's Trump, right? Like Trump is not a conservative. He, like Beck, he is, is a performer. He is somebody who he's a broadcaster who knows what his audience wants but but what i loved about it was he just couldn't stand the idea that glenn beck was someone thought glenn beck was more important than him yes that is absolutely and that's why (laughs) he ended up hating donald trump 
Um, because, you know, as, as long as Roger Ailes had been running Fox, his idea for what he sh- for the role he should be performing as head of the network was that he was going to drag these Republicans over the finish line and elect them president. Right. They wouldn't be able to do it themselves. There's this this great scene that I have in there where Ailes is, you know, this is years before Fox News and he's George H.W. Bush's debate coach or one of them. And he's he's getting in. H.W.'s face. This is the president of the United States at the time. And it's like, you have to talk. He's talking about how to debate Bill Clinton, coaching him on that. He says, you have to get in that fat fuck's face and you have to tell him. I mean, and that's the thing is, 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 and I opened the book with this scene that just shows you how that model of, of Republican politics was just being smashed because the Bush family, you know, the generations of public service, you know, they, they use their wealth and their privilege and their power to give back to their country. And that's why I opened the book with the scene of Sarah Palin and George Bush meeting for the first time. They're on Air Force One. Or George Bush is on Air Force One. He's Sarah Palin's governor. This is a few weeks before she's selected vice president. Neither of them. This is W, of course. W. Yeah. Neither of them knows that, that McCain's about to pick her. And he hardly knows who she is. He doesn't even know how to pronounce her last name. And in four weeks, she's going to be a bigger star in the Republican Party than he is. We're going to take a uh, quick break. We'll be right back with Jeremy Peters of The New York Times. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at Amazon.com slash Instant Eraser Foundation. Okay, so I wanted to ask you about the Supreme Court. Was it Trump's idea or was it one of his advisors' idea to say, I'm just going to only choose Supreme Court nominees that are recommended by the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation? I think because he was so utterly transactional, he was talked into this idea. Because it's a brilliant idea. I mean, it, that won the election, right? It, it absolutely won the election. Everything won the election. It was so close. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right. It was, it was a number of factors that I, you don't win the election w- if, without the religious right. 
And in order to get the, the religious right on board with a guy who has as you know as long a record as Trump does of being completely offensive to anything religious, it, he, he needed to do a few things. One of those was to ensure them that he wasn't going to be like the Bushes and appoint liberal Supreme Court justices, which both Bushes, well, I mean, Roberts isn't exactly a liberal, but a lot of conservatives would say he's not a conservative either. And uh, the other one was appointing Mike Pence as as his vice presidential nominee. And that really got them in line. And so it was I think it surprised a lot of evangelicals, at least the, the evangelical leadership in the party, that their voters were fine with being so transactional. Well, well, I mean, look what they got. I mean, they're, the biggest thing is to get rid of Roe v. Wade, and they're going to do that. They're they're, get it. That, that's why the subtitle is, you know, Republicans lost their party and got everything they ever wanted, because that's how you look past January 6th. That's how you adopt a worldview that is is rooted in, in delusion and in denial of reality that's inconvenient to you, because you can say, well... He at least we're we're saving babies, uh, and the people I talk to. That's I'm not and I'm not I'm not belittling that. That's what they say. It's it really is a bargain that was worth making, as far as they're concerned. And the other bargain is the corporate uh, Republicans, the establishment mm-hmm. Republicans. The Supreme Court makes it you know harder for labor unions to organize. Right? You know, it's all these uh, pro corporate. The decisions that they make. So that was part of their transaction too. They were, uh, most of these people probably don't like Trump, but True. that's the deal. And w- one of the things that does worry me about it, all this, and I think it worries everybody else is, uh, my former colleagues, uh, Republican colleagues, uh, I do text them every once in a while. They, uh, are afraid to go against Trump, but they know who he is and what he is. But they're afraid because the Republican Party base is Trump's base. Yes. Or is his Trump people. So they're they're afraid. And I've had, you know, after some teeth pulling, I've had (laughs) I've had um, a number of my colleagues go like, look, if I say the election wasn't stolen, then I will lose my primary and you'll get a bigger nut. <laughs> they don't consider themselves nuts. You'll get a nut. Right. Well, look at the woman, um, uh, Nancy Mace, uh, who oh my dared God. to speak the truth <laughs> and uh, on, on January 6th and blamed Trump and, and Trump endorsed her opponent in the primary. And now she's groveling outside Trump Tower, filming an, a, a video on her iPhone saying how she's the, Trump's biggest supporter. I mean, that's it's you, you're I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, your, you know, your private conversations with these Republican senators, because that's what I hear, too. That's what they all say. They just they will lose their primary because they're afraid. I mean, they won't say that they're afraid of their voters, but like that's that's the truth. The reality is they are afraid of their voters. I think it's actually it's not just that they're afraid. It's that they don't understand their voters, because I think if, if you're somebody like Nancy Mace, uh, to think that that's going to do the trick with Trump voters to go and stand in front of Trump Tower and pledge your loyalty to him uh, on your iPhone like uh, that. What who's going to be convinced to vote for you because of that? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's there's also the stupidity factor <laughs> yes. that you can't discount. 
Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, they might go, oh, I see. She's, for, uh, you know, they'll just watch that thing and go, oh, great. I, I didn't know that. She's really pro-Trump. I yeah, don't know. They, they could. I mean, well, the, the thing, you know, is, is Trump's endorsement. And this is an interesting point. It's an interesting distinction that I think gets lost on a lot of people about the, the, the real power that Trump has over these Republicans in office. It's not so much the endorsement as it is the attacks that he decides to wage. Right. So if he goes after you, that's when you're in trouble. That's what Republican, you know, Lil Marco, Lion Ted. Uh, and I think to, to your point earlier about how he still is, is likely to have a hold on this party for a long time. And I don't disagree with you because um, I don't think that there's anyone else who's going to come along that can do what he can do. He has so bullied these other, these Republican senators. Um, so they're, they're so afraid of what will happen to them um, if he starts taunting them because they've seen it happen to their colleagues. I mean, you're, some of your former colleagues, you know, I mean, whether it's Jeff Flake or Bob Corker, you know, these guys that he, he ran out of office because he started antagonizing them. And that speaks to the cultural change in the Republican Party, or at least the acceptance now of this, this maybe it's not a change at all, but it's just that they're willing to do it in the open where the ridicule the mean spiritedness of it all is is sport for a lot of these people, and they and they like it, and it's a reason they vote for him. You know, one of your, the people you're right about is is Sean Hannity, and just the shameless lying. He knows what he's doing, right? He knows exactly what he's doing. Yeah, and uh, you just wonder, like, wow, what is that? What, what's your self? Uh, you know, your self image. I can't be successful unless I just spread lies and poison. Well, I think what they've done is they've talked themselves because the Democratic Party um, and certain Democratic politicians have given them uh, quite a caricature to run with uh, and and proposed a lot of policies that are just incredibly unpopular and, and nonsensical, that they are able to tell themselves that the left is so awful um, that we can put, you know, that they, they hate the left hates us so much and the left will so destroy this country because they, you know, they exaggerate and they embellish and they, they make it sound as if like Ilhan Omar is is the real speaker of the House. When like, I don't know the last time a, you know, a backbench congresswoman has, has received so much national attention in the conservative media, but they do a very people like Hannity do a very good job of exaggerating the mistakes that democratic politicians make and the ill-advised policies that, that they end up getting backed into a corner over. Uh, and that's, that's easier than having to defend Trump, which of course they're perfectly happy to do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's depressing. <laughs> so are you worried? I mean, are you worried that uh, it's all over democracy and we're, we're screwed? I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to diminish like this, the seriousness of the of the threats that like we face. I'm I'm just an optimistic person by nature, and I think that there's yeah, that's a, you know, there's a reason. That, <laughs> probably, maybe I'm the, maybe I'm not old enough. Yet. Uh, but I uh, I I think that like you know, look, voters looked at Trump's record in t- 2020, and they made a choice. 
And you could say that they very narrowly made that choice, even though the you know what the popular vote says one thing, but the forty thousand votes in you know a handful of states uh, yep. really shows you the, the closeness of this. Well, it shows you how the electoral college is so screwy. Completely, um, but. I think that you are right when you know you said that that Trump has a real shot at this again. And people, you know, they ask me uh, a lot of times because when I spoke to him for this book, um, the question of of what he's going to do in, in 2024 is is always always there lingering, um, even though I never asked it directly. I could tell over the course of our interviews, as he is, he, he was getting angrier and angrier and more and more detached from reality that he is running to avenge what he sees as this, you know, this grave injustice uh, carried out against him. And it's, it, it, he wants this back, you know, and he's going to tell people, this is your chance to get your country back. And as we know, and as I, as I write in the book, I think that phrase is on the first page of my book, these conservatives who over the course of American history, at least, you know, the, the second half of the 20th century and this part of the 21st century so far have been galvanized by that sentiment, this idea that their, their country is slipping away from them. And that's just how the stop the steal stuff might be Trump's ace in the hole, because it, he's, he's saying to them, like, they stole this from me, but they also stole it from you. Let's take it back. It also is just white people <laughs> uh, worried about losing their status, you know, their cultural status. That's part of what this is tapping into, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and, and one of the things that, um, I mean, yes. And as you, as you correctly pointed out, like that's why the Obama election, what, what so outraged a lot of these, these voters who became Tea Party people, once they saw that Obama was, and I mean, you were there for this. Once they saw that Obama was going to pass this, 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 this universal health care law, um, once they saw that it, well, it wasn't they, universal, it's, but, but it true, was okay, expanding. Fair, yeah. The fair ACA. Um, right. You know what? They, they, they started to see him as the right wing caricature that he's this, this socialist, right. Who's, who's fundamentally changing the character of the country. And, that was one thing, like in theory, to hear from from people like McCain on the campaign trail. But you know, they they latch onto this idea that a, that a, a law expanding healthcare access is somehow like a socialist takeover of the country, in part because they were told this by a very well financed uh, right wing political operation. Yeah, and it, what happened was is that, of course, uh, Trump said that he's going to replace Obamacare with something terrific, and <laughs> and then. I, I thought like, oh, well, I, okay, he wins. And I'm guessing, well, I guess the Cato Institute and, you know, American Enterprise Institute and the Heritage Foundation must have put together kind of a market-based thing, the substitute. And what they came up with was so horrible. It, it was like 23 million Americans would have lost coverage. Mm-hmm. It, it was so awful. And it went down, thank, thank God, for McCain's thumb down. And then um, remember what Trump said? He said, who knew healthcare was so complicated? <laughs> and the answer is everybody, you asshole. You well, who knew idiot. the economy was so complicated? Who knew managing a pandemic could be so complicated? And that's ultimately, you know, when you talk to people, as, as I did for this book, they, that was the, the people who were honest about his leadership could see that he was incapable of any type of real leadership, especially 
when it all came home uh, with with a pandemic, a racial reckoning, um, and an economic collapse. It's just not something he was ever interested in doing or built for. Oh no, no. I mean, the guy watched TV, watched Fox, can't read. I mean, can read, I think, but he doesn't read. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) he wanted all his briefings oral, you know, and then would get impatient (laughs) if they were long. And I mean, we look at that and think like, wow, that guy is so ill-suited voters and and a lot of voters judged him to be completely ill-qualified to be the president of the United States. But I think a lot of people still look at that and they're like, oh, he's, you know, he's not a politician. Right. <laughs> That's, it's this like authenticity. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you look, looked at those Republican debates and, you know, in 16, basically all of them were politicians and they talked in talking points. And Trump just sounded like a, a human being, an odd human being, an awful human being, but nevertheless, you know, interesting. I mean, well, an insult entertaining. Is, is, yeah, is how I often saw him. As he was, he could be, he could be withering and quite funny in in his in his insults and his little petty slights. Yeah, uh, your wife is laughing. ugly. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> Jesus. Yay, we like him. Yeah. <laughs> But that's, I mean, and I think one of the most, the, the biggest revelations that I had in my reporting of this book was the tolerance, not just the, the, the tolerance generally for that type of, of ugliness and, and, and nastiness and personal vendetta. It was that the evangelical crowd told themselves that they were not only okay with it, but that a lot of them liked it. And these guys like Pete Weiner, who's a former Bush speechwriter, who will no longer call himself evangelical uh, because of the association with you know, the Trump evangelicals has a theory that, you know, that that, that kind of mean spiritedness was always running under the surface um, in, in, in evangelical crowds because of just the, the othering that happens uh, in a lot of evangelical churches and uh, that people like they laugh. I mean, this is the, what people forget. And I try to get into this in the book is that when the day that Trump insulted John McCain, as a, not a war hero because he'd been captured. Right. I thought that was the end. I thought it was the end. <laughs> I thought that was the end of him. <laughs> Everybody did. But you know what? Like, had we been listen, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty as you are. Had we been carefully watched, listening and, and paying attention there, he spoke those words in front of an evangelical audience in Iowa and the audience laughed. No. Huh. Yeah. Well, they got their, they got their court. And, um, it, uh, uh, they got everything they ever wanted, right? That's uh, yes. The subtitle of the book, mm-hmm. but let's, uh, <laughs> in, very good. Yes. Yeah. You know how to sell books. Okay. Uh, the name of the book title, title of the book, let's call it title insurgency subtitle, how Republicans lost their party and got everything they ever wanted. Jeremy, uh, thank you. (laughs) Well, thanks for having me. I thought it was a great conversation. I was okay. (laughs) I held up my end. I know that. (laughs) This was fun. Thank you. And and, uh, really recommend the book uh, very highly. Thank you. Well, I I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast.
We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.